The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, with a focus on the catastrophic Russian crossing of the Seversky Donets River. And I interview Ukraine's answer to Graham Norton, Tima Moroshchenenko, who'll be commentating on the Eurovision Song Contest from a bomb shelter in Kyiv. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 13th of May, day 79. And today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, and assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom and Venetia for the latest updates from the battlefront. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So a couple of things. Uh, first off, Snake Island. We've been saying keep an eye on Snake Island for a few days now. This is the, the, the very small island in the, in the northwest of the Black Sea um, of use, I mean, critical use for Russia if they want to do an amphibious landing in the, in the area of Odessa. They've, they simply have to hold Snake Island. They, they can't do it if, um, if it's in Ukrainian hands and they're able to put any any air defence and uh, anti-ship missiles and other other forces on that island. So Russia has to, has to hold Snake Island. They took it early, earlier in the war. It's been contested ever since. We're not entirely sure what is left on it. Russia did hold it, and, it, and uh, there was a number, number of airstrikes, um, both by uh, sort of traditional fast air and drones that have uh, destroyed a number of, number of facilities on the island and also sunk a, sunk a landing craft. So in the, in the last 24 hours, we've seen a a massive Russian floating self-propelled crane um, turn up, uh, possibly to re- recover the, the Cerner-class landing ship that is wrecked and kind of blocking the area that they, they need access to if they're going to unload a uh, landing craft there. Um, it, it, it may also have, have unloaded a landing craft itself, just li- literally lifted it off the deck and put it in the water, but they, do, they need, need to clear out the wreck that's under the water there. You can see on, on the satellite imagery. Um, I mean, that... that the wreck that was there was hit by a TB2 Barrector drone, we think on May the 7th or there, thereabouts. So it's, a, it's an indication of, uh, of how important Russia sees Snake Island. I mean, it's, there's a massive target there right now, this, this crane. Um, I don't, there been, there's been no action against it of, uh, in the last few hours. Whether Ukraine is going to, going to attempt to, uh, to, to do something against it, we will obviously see over the next day. But uh, no, Snake Island is, is still being very heavily contested. The second area we, we, sh- we should look at is this, this failed river crossing in the, in the Donbass over the, the Seversky Donetsk River. This, was, this has resulted in, in dozens of armoured vehicles, tanks, BMP, BTR, trucks as well, um, and assessed hundreds of uh, deaths, casualties from Russian troops trying to uh, get across this, this river. There's a number of things about this. So in today's MOD, British MOD Defence Intelligence Estimate, they're saying that this, this failed river crossing um, it shows, shows how Russian commanders are under pressure to get things going. I don't actually agree with that. I, think, I, I don't think in and of itself it shows that they're under pressure to get things going. This, this was a river crossing. This, had, this was a tactical action that would, would 
have an operational imperative because what they're trying to do is seemingly they're trying to encircle uh, Severodonetsk in the in the, in that area. Just a just a pause for a moment there. Interesting now that that seems to be the the main effort that, that Russia are having such such a problem achieving. It was only a few weeks ago that there was talk of oh my god they're going to encircle the Donbass. They're going to push up from Mariupol. They'll come down from Kharkiv. They're, they're going to encircle the whole of the Donbass and cut off the resupply routes from the west. I mean that that has simply not happened. And there's been huge. That, that Russia is very slowly taking ground in the Donbass, but at a huge cost. And this relatively small tactical action uh, has led to disaster. Uh, I mean, I mean, I disagree with the MOD assessment in a way because uh, any obstacle crossing, river crossings or minefield crossings, or any, any obstacle crossing is always a very, very tricky passage of, of military activity. Uh, fraught with risk, uh, the, the, the enemy know that the obstacle is there. If it's a minefield, obviously they know it's there because they've, they've laid it. Um, river crossings, there's not. There's only a certain number of places that it's that it would be appropriate or impossible to do uh, to do a, a river crossing with armoured vehicles. So, it, it, it a, a decent ground recce from in this case Ukraine would have identified a number of potential spots where this could take place. They should have been covering that. They may well have been covering all of them with with uh, eyes in the sky and maybe other sensors on the ground to indicate movement. Um, and uh, possible thermal images, for example, show if, if anyone is showing an interest there. And then from the Russian side, you you can't just rock up and 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 put together a pontoon bridge. If the if the river is too deep for for tanks to wade across, then uh, and armored vehicles, then they need these pontoon bridges, basically just floating on top, tethered either side. You know, these take this takes hours to um, to do. So you've got this very vulnerable area um, that's going to take hours of, of hard engineering effort to get across. Um, and you've got to necessarily bunch a load of stuff together in a very small piece of geography. So any kind of obstacle crossing is a is a really really tricky um, maneuver for a military force to do. In the in the in the in the case of a river crossing, you've got to dominate your home bank. You've got to dominate the far bank. You've got to have a decent headquarters sighted close enough to be able to see what's going on, but not so close that it's going to get whacked by artillery if that starts coming in. You need to have. Um, your, your, your crossing force or the first force that's going to be across held at, at some distance so that they're not in the immediate contact battle if it, if it all starts going wrong. And then they have to charge across the, the makeshift bridge or however you've done it uh, and dominate the far bank so that they can then push, push any counterattack from, in this case, Ukraine away and secure that site. But for a small period of time, all these forces come together and it looks as though Russia have either bunched too many forces together and, and just not been able to get over the river in any great numbers. There, there are Russian uh, casualties in terms of vehicles and undoubtedly personnel as well uh, on the west bank, so the Ukrainian bank of the river. So they did manage to get across, but that, that force was then, they didn't, they didn't get across in, in sufficient numbers to either repel any counterattack or have enough uh, electronic warfare assets or air defence assets to to knock out the drones that were clearly watching them and seeing what was going on and able to call in artillery. So the whole the whole thing was just a bit of a well a complete disaster for Russia. Now there's a chance that this that that Russian forces were widely dispersed and that these casualties we see were just the just the ones who happened to be there at the time. I don't I doubt that because the numbers are just staggering. I mean this looks like it's been assessed it's an entire battalion tactical group that's been destroyed. Um 
And so it's unlikely that this was just one small part of a much wider force trying to get over the river. So it does look like that they, they were two bunched together. Whatever happened with the pontoon bridge, that, didn't, that hasn't worked because it's now in pieces in the water, even though, as I say, some Russian forces did make it to the West Bank. So they, they just had, Ukraine had some very good um, knowledge, some very good uh, reconnaissance of the area to work out where they might want to be keeping a close eye on. And then we're able to call in fire very accurately and very quickly. Now, just a final point on this. There was a, um, a social media feed from, from Maxim. We haven't seen Maxim before, but he was, he was claiming that he sort of played a, played a pivotal role in all this, which is you know, fine. Good luck, good luck to Maxim. Um, it sounds from his description that he was a kind of engineer recce element. Um, and that, that's fine. Um, you know, I don't think he gave away anything particularly on of operational security. It's a bit unusual to have somebody so quickly after the event or or in the middle of a war come up and say it was, it was all me thanks even if you know, there's been some suggestions that the people who are taking to social media are looking to their sort of post-war career potentially but I just wonder if this is a, a little bit of a a little bit of um, disinformation or a little bit of subterfuge by by Ukraine I mean Ukraine are are playing the information campaign brilliantly as we've seen through this war and I just wonder if if uh, Maxim, whoever he, she, or or it, the bot created Maxim might be, um, if that is there to divert attention away from from too much attention, too many questions about exactly how did Ukraine manage to get this targeting so precise and bring down such a heavy weight of fire so accurately to destroy this battalion tactical group, um, and I'll just leave that thought there. Thanks, Tom. Incredibly comprehensive. Um, Phoenicia and Francis, uh, would you like to add to that? Yeah, so there's a few more details. I think Dom is right that we should always be suspicious of these sort of very um, granular accounts that we get so soon after the fact. But there are some more details in in Maxim's account um, that seem to be sort of corroborated with some of the pictures, some of the satellite pictures that we can see. He talks about how... um, he talks about how the, the the area had very low visibility. The Russians have been throwing around smoke grenades. Um, the forests nearby have been set on fire. And in addition, it was also really foggy. Um, so they'd been doing recce's in advance through... Um, they'd been sort of sending boats up and down the river. They knew the Russians wanted to cross the river. It's the longest in eastern Ukraine. They'd been doing recce's up and down in, in boats, trying to figure out where the most likely place was that they'd cross. And as Dom said, they'd identified a few, few spots that they were keeping an eye on. Um, and the Ukrainian forces knew when it was foggy. They they knew something was going on. They were waiting to hear the sound of motorboats, is how he sa- says it. Um, and the motorboats would suggest that they were then tugging across the sections of the pontoon bridge. And that would mean that um, vehicles were getting ready to cross. And they waited until the vehicles were crossing, had sort of ready, already started the cross before they called in the artillery. And that's what led to such massive devastation. As, as Dom said, some were left stranded on the other side and were quite quickly obliterated. The bridges themselves were destroyed obviously, the people who were still waiting on the other side. Um, so yeah, dozens of military vehicles, hundreds of Russian soldiers killed. Um, and it does seem a pretty extraordinary example of um, a Ukrainian victory in terms of, you know, reconnaissance and intelligence. It's unclear how much help they might have got from abroad, for example, from the US. We know the US's intelligence sharing um, might have contributed satellite imagery, might have had other other information that they could help the Ukrainians out with. Um, there's some suggestion that maybe there was a drone involved as well. Um, so yeah, really just an incredible story. And we've got a long read up on it on the Telegraph website. So I would encourage all of our listeners to to get stuck into that. 
Thanks, Venetia. Thanks, Dom. Can we talk about a little bit about a Russian man called Vadim Shimisarin? He's the commander of the Kantomorovsky Attack Division. The Ukrainians are putting him on trial. I think he, I believe he's the the first Russian uh, soldier to go on trial in Ukraine for 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 actions in this war. Um, what's happening there? Can we talk about this? Yes. Yeah, so um, this man is accused essentially of shooting an unarmed civilian who was riding his bicycle home. This was back in February 28th, a couple of, just a couple of days after the, after the invasion began on February 24th. Um, and it was in a small town um, between sort of Sumy and Kharkiv out in the northeast of the country. Um, and this guy was riding, a 62-year-old man was riding his bicycle home when a group of Russian soldiers in apparently a stolen car drove past. And this soldier Put his gun out the window and fired a shot at this man. He he said in a confession video given to the Ukrainian forces who captured him later, he said he fired a single shot. The guy was shot in the head um, and he died shortly afterwards, sort of a couple of dozen metres away from his home. And he's now being put on trial for for this war crime under the Ukrainian um, criminal code. Uh, he faces life in prison. But really the significance of this is that we're already starting to see Ukrainians trying to bring... Russian soldiers to justice. They've obviously captured a bunch of Russian soldiers. They'll also be trying some people in absentia. There's a case coming up next week, a really awful case where they're trying a Russian soldier in absentia for um, murdering, murdering a man and raping a woman in front of her child. Um, in their family home. Really awful stuff. But they want to collect, they have collected the evidence, they've collected witness testimonies, and they want to start prosecuting these things now. Um, you can argue that maybe it's better to wait until conflict's over, but no one really knows when that will be. So I think this is a good step towards trying to find some kind of justice for these crimes. Of course, the question is, under what conditions were some of these confessions obtained? Will the people who are standing trial, these Russian soldiers, they're entitled to fair legal representation? Will they be getting that? Um, so some some questions around that. But yeah, that's what's happening today. If I could just add something to, to what Venetia was saying there, um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll make references in, in a minute, um, around the fact that we've actually got footage of, of these uh, atrocities that have been committed. One of the most interesting, I think, facets of this, of this conflict has been the way in which, of course, through social media, but other big data sources, um, particularly those compiled by Bellingcat, which we've made references to before, have allowed us to be able to make real-time records um, of the crimes that we are seeing in the war in Ukraine, um, mostly committed by the Russians, but there have also been instances of, of, of Ukrainians committing this on Russians as well. I think it's important to say that. Um, and, and of course, this will be of huge significance in, 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 in trials moving forward, whether that be of, 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 of Russian generals or, or just of individual soldiers, as, as in the account here. I think it's, it's just worth emphasising this because in conflicts in the past, this has actually been something that has been enormously challenging and has actually very often not occurred. If you're looking at the Second World War, then it was the perspective of, of the Allied powers that really all they could do was try the um, the sort of Nazi party officials and, and, and the ministers and, and a few generals. But really, they, they didn't uh, try and put that many individual soldiers in, on, on trial until until later, who'd committed, of course, um, the most heinous examples of, of, of the Holocaust. Um, 
But uh, now I don't think that will be the case. I think the world has moved on and there's a sense that because we have access to this information that this will be uh, something for that won't, don't, won't be temporary. This will be something that for decades to come we will be reading about trials of people who committed crimes in the last few months. So I just think it's, 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 it's a positive change of, of in the past these, these, these awful crimes would have gone either unreported or would have just the, the people who perpetrated them would have been able to, to get away with them. Now with technology being as it is, I think the, the, the chances of that are, are greatly reduced and, and we should celebrate that. It's one of the few uh, examples of, of, of perhaps a positive outcome from this war. And just to add to that, I think one of the sort of key questions after World War II was this question of responsibility. You know, to what extent can you prosecute the, the camp guard? Although we have been prosecuting some camp guards, some very old camp guards. I believe someone who's 101 is set to go on trial in Germany next week. But to what extent are these people actually responsible for their crimes? And to what extent were they just following orders? Um, this Russian soldier who's on trial today said that he was just following orders from a commander who was in the car. Does that absolve him of responsibility? You know, will those arguments still wash. Um, I think it's really interesting to see how that plays out. If I could just also say on that, I think it's a really, it's been a fascinating shift in, in recent decades on that very point. As I say, when, when the war ended, um, there was really this, this idea that <laughs> to follow orders was actually an accepted defence. Um, but that very gradually shifted um, over the decades, particularly due to campaigning from um, the Simon Wiesenthal Centre uh, and, and and others that basically said that, no, actually, if you committed a crime, then you are responsible for that, regardless of what the orders were. Um, and of course, the Eichmann trial in the 1960s helped shift the narrative on that as well. He cited the defence of himself just following orders. Um, most famously, um, there was the, the, the book on the trial of Eichmann by Hannah Ardent, who was there reporting for the New Yorker on on his uh, on his trial, and she regarded him as an example of the banality of evil, of sort of bureaucrats, pen pushers who who do awful things but absolve themselves from responsibility because they see themselves as just following orders. As I say, um, that book was very influential, but has actually been in the years since it was published. Um, quite heavily disputed, not only in, in the sort of moral terms, as Venetia was saying, we now think that the people are responsible regardless of the orders that, um, that they have received, but also just purely in the example of Eichmann's case as being uh, inaccurate. He, he was not just this sort of pen-pushing bureaucrat. He was somebody who actually was a vicious anti-Semite um, and um, he even learnt Hebrew in, in order to, to facilitate him being able to carry out his orders more effectively. So um, I just mentioned that as, as, as an example of how things have shifted since the Second World War into how we see the culpability of those who've committed um, acts. And as I say, now that is coupled with actually us able to find these people far easier with the technology that has been afforded to us. So a very interesting shift, but I think a positive one. Thank you, Francis, and thank you, Venetia. Can we talk a little bit about the news today on the EU and the uh, proposed sanctions on Russian oil and gas? Uh, there's been quite a bit of movement today uh, and some disagreement about it. So can we talk about that, Venetia and Francis? What, what's happening here? 
Yes, well, um, as you say, uh, the European Union has been debating this now for some time, as we've talked about in much detail. Um, there still remains to be uh, a, 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 a conclusion that is reached that all sides can agree to. Essentially, you've got tension between the two, between sort of the Western powers that want to go further. Um, um, some of them, of course, have newly converts to that cause of going further, but nonetheless, um, they're, they're steering things forward in a direction um, where they want to be um, banning, banning the entirety of, 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 of Russian oil by the end of the year, less so on gas, um, which we've talked about in the past. Um, but that some other nations in within the European Union are now much more sceptical of that um, and are worried, of course, because they're more reliant on um, on uh, on Russian oil, but also on, on in terms of weaponry and, and support. I'm thinking particularly of Hungary um, that are much more reluctant to go down that road. And so some of these some tensions have opened up within the European Union as as with regard to what the direction of travel is. Of course, it's important to say that countries can operate independently of. Of, of the European Union policy, um, uh, as we've seen, obviously, in the examples of the Czech Republic and Poland. And yet, I think it's a vital point to make out that, that they are actually often operating outside of, of the, I suppose, desire of the European Union, um, who, who may want to do things more slowly in terms of the military support that were offered. Of course, initially, that was the case with, um, with, with France and Germany, who I think desired to have a, a uniform response to the crisis. But actually, um, um, Czech Republic and, and, and Poland have, have effectively went against that um, and, uh, and were willing to um, to sort of go further than desire, and it may well have proved absolutely crucial um, in saving lives, particularly obviously Poland taking in over three million refugees. If they had not been willing to do so, if they had waited for a coordinated response organised from the European Union, then I don't think necessarily that would have been um, as quickly forthcoming, and who knows what there would have been the consequences of that would have been. Uh, Venetia and Dom, anything more to add on this? Well, I think one of the um, proposed... Part of the proposed package of sanctions, which the EU is desperate to get through, it's like their sixth or maybe seventh tranche that they're trying to get through, which has been stumbling over this issue of oil, um, are sanctions against more of Putin's inner circle, um, including um, uh, Putin's wife, Lyudmila Orechnaya, and Putin's girlfriend, Alina Kabeva. Um, the UK has actually just announced sanctions against both of those women and a couple of his cousins as well. Um, so I think we're sort of starting to see the, the noose tighten around more of Putin's people that were pu- previously seen as untouchable um, from Putin's innermost personal circle. Um, we're now see- starting to see sanctions go after them as well. Thanks, Venetia. Um, can we talk about forced deportations? I mean, we've, we've seen an update in the Telegraph's live blog today that Ukraine has accused Russia of forcibly deporting more than 200,000 children uh, to turn them into Russian citizens. I know we, we, we've heard from uh, Theo Merz, the deputy foreign editor, that this is something that the foreign desk are looking into. And Venetia and Francis and Dom, can we say much more about what we know about, about, about these deportations, specifically of children? We we don't know we don't know much to be honest. We know Russia gave us a figure um, I think a couple of weeks ago that a million people had been evacuated in scare quotes um, to Russia for sort of humanitarian reasons. We can take that to mean that you know one million people have been put on trains or buses to Russia and p- probably given very little choice. Um, back when we 
back when our Russia correspondent was still allowed to report in Russia. Um, she went to some of the sort of very earliest camps on the edges of Ukraine, uh, on the edges of the Ukrainian border in Russia, inside Russia, and people there were really confused. They weren't, you know, being told much what was happening. Um, they were being sort of stuck on transport to far part, far flung parts of Russia. Um, some of them were given sort of things to sign that they weren't given much option to sort of decipher or decode. Um, there's a lot of confusion. We've also heard from within Russia that there are Russian activists who've been trying to help Ukrainians to get back out of the country. You know, they're not usually sort of locked up once they're there. But if you're stuck in the far part of Russia, then you don't always have the resources to, to get back to Europe or to Ukraine or to this side of the world. Um, we don't really know what's happening with the children, but of course, it's mainly women and children that are being evacuated. Some men, they're being often sent to filtration camps, the Russians call them, where they're being checked for tattoos and any other signs of the fact that they might have been Ukrainian fighters. And, and then and then we don't know what. Um, so it's quite a sort of murky area. But yes, one that we're looking at very closely. Thanks, uh, Venetia. Uh Dominic Nichols, um, you've mentioned that there is some speculation about the Russian general Gerasimov. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so this is the head of Russia's entire armed forces, General Valery Gerasimov. Should make make clear this is not General Vitaly Gerasimov who was killed in the first uh, first month of the war. So General Valery Gerasimov, the head of the whole shooting match, literally, uh, not been seen for a few days, uh, was not seen at the Victory Day Parade on Monday. Um, and there was speculation this this is important who is who is where who gets to talk to sit near putin and so on and so forth and um who is on parade and not it, it is a uh, is a fascinating subject kremlin kremlinology of which i uh, i'm very much in the shallow end but it was notable that he was not he was not at parade on parade and also very notable that after putin left the the main the main diet after the main parade of, of vehicles and, and personnel and then moved around the corner of the Kremlin to the, the, the tomb of the unknown soldier. I mean, he, he and Shoigu were, I mean, at times literally shoulder to shoulder. They're walking along and, and, and rubbing shoulders. I mean, th this was a very clear display of support for Shoigu. There had been speculation that um, Shoigu, as the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, had fallen out of favour. Um, or perhaps a window in the Kremlin, but that is seemingly not not the case. But uh, Gerasimov, a different kettle of fish entirely. And of course, remember, it was a couple of weeks ago, Gerasimov was sent down to Ukraine um, to go and crack the whip and get, get things moving again. Uh, very strange at the time, we, we suggested that, that actually um, this was just a, a couple of weeks after Dvornikov, General Dvornikov, was put in overall command of the effort um, to try and pull all the different aspects together. Up to that point, Russia had seemingly been fighting four wars, one in the north, one in the south, one in the east, and then the Air Force War. And D uh, Dvornikov was put in there to, to pull the whole thing together, make the orchestra sing. And then sending Gerasimov down so soon after that announcement was very odd. And at the time, there, there was speculation that this was uh, setting up Gerasimov as the fall guy for this failed adventure, this ridiculous adventure of Putin's. I was with uh, Ben Wallace in, in Finland and I asked, I asked him if, if Grasimov was going to be one of the fall guys or going to be the fall guy. And he said that there's going to be fall guys all over the place. I mean, the, the, the Putin and, and the Russian system is not shy in, in finding people. And there's speculation today all over social media from, from Russian sources about trying to find who's responsible for this, for the river crossing debacle, for, for example. So there's always got to be, there's always heads have to roll. And there was a suggestion that Gerasimov had been sent down to Ukraine 
to very publicly put himself in the position of, of fall guy. So the fact that he's now uh, not been seen at the Victory Day parade, not been seen for a few days, and, and there are suggestions, unconfirmed, important to note that, unconfirmed suggestions that he has been suspended pending all sorts of investigations. I mean, th- this could be the start of some warped kind of golden bridge or off-ramp for for Putin. If You know, I'll take that. Happy, happy with that. Um, but yes, the, the speculation now, which should firm up over the next hours as reports come out of Russia about what's happened to um, General Gerasimov. Just while we're on the subject of, of discussing uh, Russian kleptocracy and, 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 and generals, there's a very interesting point made on Twitter by Maxim Trudolyubov, who's the editor of The Russian File. Um, and effectively, he makes a very good point, which is that this is now becoming a, a war between generations, both within Russia, but also in the context of war in Ukraine with the Russian um, generals and political leaders f- fighting the, Rus- the the generals, soldiers and, and, and political leaders of Ukraine. So uh, effectively, he, he, he points out on Twitter that um, in a sense, the Russian leadership represent the last generation of the Soviet born leaders, uh, whereas the Ukrainian leadership grew up in the 80s and 90s and are the first post-Soviet generation. And of course, there's a huge mentality shift that that, that, that comes along with that. But he, 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 he highlights that effectively the average age of, um, of, of the key officials in Russia is around 64. In Ukraine, the average age is 44. And obviously where this plays out as being influential is the Soviet mentality is one that is quite different to in, in how to fight in what in, in, in what things are permitted for for one to do and, and not permitted um, and I think we've 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 seen that articulated on the ground um, but also this age cohort in 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 Russia particularly the reason that it's that that this younger generation has left is or or, or is not present anymore is either they have left is that they have been forced out that they've they've um, been wanted to they've been encouraged to leave the country because they are not as loyal to uh, to Putin or to the Russian state and we've talked about that many times or they have actively been been repressed have been in, put in jail or um, or worse um, and so um, but this is actually now playing out and having real term consequences because of course if you are fighting a modern day war one where there is an a, a, an information war on social media and everything else then to have a younger generation who are more masterly at that who are more adaptive at that then that has a big role to play and i think as we've talked about many many times zelensky's brilliance on camera fluidity um in 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 social media and this is something that his whole um operation has been very very good at many of his the, those closest surrounding him um and his advisors used to work in television this has a big influence and and i just think it's a very interesting point that this generational battle is one that has big implications and i think um, will be a much discussed area of the conflict in 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 the years to come I'm sorry to come back and be so clunky, but to uh, to jump back in. But I should have said in my my uh, uh, report there about General Gerasimov, it was uh, Alexei Arestovich, who's President Zelensky's advisor. This is where this is what started these these suggestions. He did, was um, interviewed on YouTube, and so you'll be able to find that. 
uh, and he was he was starting this um, this potent, this news that uh, Grasmov might have been might have been removed. He was also saying that Lieutenant General Sergei Kish, the commander of the first tank army, who is in charge of the the, the Kharkiv area of operations, uh, has also been removed after that um, the pushback, the number of counterattacks that that Ukraine has managed to knit together in the north and east of Kharkiv. So uh, it looks like the commander there may also have been removed from post. But no, Alexei Arestovich was the was the source for that information. Thanks, Tom, and thanks, Francis. Uh, let's, um, Francis, Francis Stanley, you've um, been looking at a censored memo by a prominent former Chinese diplomat, uh, which has thrown some light on China's view of Russia's failure so far. Can you tell us about this? What does it, what does it show us about how the Chinese are thinking? Yes, well, it's been a, a very revealing um, translation of an article that was published on the website Phoenix News, which is um, one of the state-run uh, media operations in in China. Um, it's by a man called Gao Yusheng, who's the former Chinese ambassador to Ukraine. And he effectively, in this article, which, as I say, was removed within hours of being uploaded, but no doubt articulates many of the thinking amongst the Communist Party elite in China, or at least the diplomatic elite. Um, uh, he argues that Russia is losing the war in Ukraine, again, and more of an admission than, than has certainly been given by the Chinese state, and, and reflects on the impact this may have on the international order. So whilst he's retired now, it's, he's obviously been speaking to... to various academics as well. I believe it was actually based on a talk that he gave at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, which is a, an important think tank for the party and, and, and for the government. Um, so it was an internal event as well, I should say. So it seems likely that they would have known what his views were before he, he gave these remarks. But essentially what he argues is that, um, and, and I'm quoting here, that the Russian army's poverty-driven defeat was always evident. He cites the um, economic and financial strength of Russia compared to many of the Western powers. He says that its state, he challenges its status as a so-called military superpower, that it wasn't able to support a high-tech war. Um, quote, Russia is not only in a passive position on the battlefield, but has lost in other areas. This means that it is only a matter of time before Russia is finally defeated. Um, again, quite a remarkable remark from somebody who is, you know, an, a, effectively has formerly been part of, of a state that up until now has been rather quiet in condemning Putin. And not only that, has actually been um, said that they are effectively joint in the hip on foreign policy prior to the conflict. Um, he also says Russia's political, economic, military and diplomatic power will be significantly weakened and isolated. Uh, Russia's power will weaken even more. So uh, Ukraine would be removed from Russia's orbit and sphere of influence and become a member of the great European family, a member of the European Union. So some very interesting reflections. And I say if this is uh, emblematic of how the Chinese elite are currently thinking, then this is a huge shift from where they were prior to the conflict and one that will make very, very worrying reading for Vladimir Putin, because if he loses the support of China in a world where he is increasingly diplomatically isolated from Europe and others, then he will have very few options for selling energy, very few options in terms of military support, and it only increases the likelihood of, of his nation becoming a pariah state. And of course, with time, that will no doubt challenge his leadership, would you give the economic impact of that. So a very, very significant intervention, I think. 
Thank you very much, Francis. Um, before um, we finish for this week, I think we should talk a little bit about uh, Eurovision, ending the week on a slightly lighter note. Uh, the Eurovision Song Contest is tomorrow night, Saturday night. Uh, it's taking place in Italy. Ukraine are the favourites to win it. Um, I'm conscious on the podcast that we have quite a large American audience. So, Francis, Venetia and Dom, can you tell us a little bit about Eurovision and specifically the contest this, this year? And Why does it matter? I mean, Eurovision is one of those things that... <laughs> Eurovision is one of those things that I feel like you either love it or you just don't really get it. <laughs> I will I will put my hands up and say that I'm in the second camp. I've I've never watched it, but of course I'm aware of it. Um, it is a real cultural moment every year in Europe where the Europop's greatest get together um, and compete for the crown of Eurovision winner. Um, and I mean, this year it's particularly significant because Europe has felt like it's been thrown into disarray the last few months. This is not a familiar place for Europe. In Europe, we learn about wars as something from history, you know. Um, and now it's here, it's on our doorstep, it's happening and it's pulling all of us in. And we've been talking about it nonstop, as our listeners know. Um, and I think this contest is a time where we can sort of think about the good things that bring European values together. Um, and for the Ukrainian team in particular, it must be an amazing feeling to be, sort of feel like not just Ukraine is behind them, but probably, you know, almost all of Europe. Um, they're by far the favourites to win. But big twist for our American listeners who may not get how big a deal this is. The UK is actually in second place to win, as in favourite, second favourite to win, to, to come second, sorry. Um if we do manage to pull that off, that would be extraordinary because we famously got nil point um, back a couple of years ago and are, are known for not doing very well in this contest despite our best efforts. So that will be one to watch tomorrow night. Yes, um, I think we haven't won for 25 years. Um, in, in, in 1997, I think it was Katrina and the Waves um, who, who won Love Shines a Light. I, I'm admitting here my uh, uh, <laughs> knowledge of Eurovision, but what can I say? My mother is a big fan. Um, but just one other remark I would make on Eurovision. Yes, it seems very silly in the context of, of us talking about the, some of the other huge geopolitical issues we've been talking about today. But actually, it does have a role. It is a hugely popular contest watched by uh, hundreds of millions of people possibly even billions of people around the world with catch-up. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it does, as excuse the pun, shine a light on the... Um, on the on the geopolitical issues of the moment, so um, Ukraine obviously this time we expect to 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 win or at the very least to to receive a lot of support from from Europe and that that of course flags the issue to perhaps many countries around the world that have not really been been following it as closely as we have in Europe. Um, also, it's political because of how often countries vote in political blocks. So, form it used to be the case where you and and still is that you would see the former Soviet bloc countries that would sort of more vote vote in vote, vote for 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 each other's countries. So you might get Romania voting for Bulgaria, or you might get um, uh, I don't know. You, you you get the gist, and you might get certain Western um, Western powers doing the same. And uh, and but with time, actually, this is this is sort of perhaps starting to shift, and it'll be very interesting seeing on. Um, uh, on Saturday night, whether we actually see a reflection of how 
Europe might be changing as a reaction to Russia. I should say that Russia have not been permitted to enter the contest this year, but no doubt there will be some reflection on the voting on those countries that are perhaps more in favour of, of what Putin has done. So, yes, it's small in the grand scheme, but as far as how millions of people, hundreds of millions of people around the world are concerned, this will be a moment where their attention will be drawn to a European issue, no doubt, and that, that, has, that has an influence. Thanks, Francis. And uh, Dom Nichols on Saturday night, will you be watching Eurovision and supporting uh, supporting the UK or Ukraine? I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I'm aware of, of, of Eurovision, um, a bit like I'm aware of the Canadian Ice Hockey League. It's sort of out there and, and you know, if I'm in a bar with some mates and it's on, I'll briefly take it. But, yeah, I, I've, I don't know. I, I mean, the person in the, the spandexy, the spangliest, shiniest trousers will will do for me um and beyond that i'm going to adopt the francis durnley defense of uh, my mother is a big fan ho ho well thank you very much don thank you francis and thank you venetia um we're coming to the end of the week so can we get your final thoughts um on what we should be looking for over the weekend and into next week please uh, for, for me it's uh, i've said it for a few days actually but i think i think that's because it's it is important and, and these things don't just just happen overnight um northeast southwest so northeast the the ukrainian pushback around kharkiv pushing russian forces reportedly as back as far as the border and if they can do that then they're soon into those supply lines coming down from belgorod to, which will keep which are keeping russia in the in the fight in the donbass so so the, this although we're looking at the donbass it might be further to the north that has a real real impact there in the next few days and southwest snake island for all the reasons that we spoke about at the start of this of this space this podcast um wh- whoever owns snake island has got a, a massive operational advantage in the southwest there and russia simply has to hold that piece of rock if they want to do anything they want to threaten an amphibious assault to the to the southwest uh, which is a, again a reason why ukraine has to own it so northeast southwest for me thanks tom uh, finish your yeah, I, I mean, I think that I think the blockade of um, Ukraine, which Snake, of which Snake Island is part of the story, I think is really important and just has such huge um, impacts and wider effects and repercussions for both Ukraine and the region and the world at large um, with all the grain shortages that we're seeing. Um, so I think that's one to watch. And uh, well, yeah, keep keep an eye on what's happening in the Donbass because the Russians don't seem to be making much progress there. And go read our bridge story. It's it's really brilliant. The title is A Bridge Too Far. You can't miss it. A quick word to all of our international listeners, if you haven't heard of Eurovision. The Eurovision Song Contest is a continent-wide institution. It's watched by hundreds of millions of people every year. Every year, singers and bands representing their countries battle it out to be crowned European champion. Voting is done through a mix now of audience participation and a judges panel at the contest itself. Eurovision means glitz, kitsch, Europop, even Euro trash, but also geopolitics, with countries often voting along linguistic, economic or even diplomatic lines. On the one hand, then, it's just a silly competition, but on another, a mirror to the concerns and beliefs and sympathies of millions of Europeans. This year, the contest is being held in Turin, Italy. But how will it be reported in Ukraine, who are currently favourites to win? I spoke to Timo Moroshchenenko, a broadcaster and journalist who will be commentating on Eurovision for Ukrainian television. He's a Eurovision veteran, having presented or commentated on every competition since 2007. Here's what he had to say. Well, Tima, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to us. Um, could you give us a sense ahead of the competition on Saturday? How serious is Ukraine about Eurovision? Is it a big deal? 
And, you know, for Ukraine, Eurovision was a big deal even before the war started. And of course, right now it's a huge arena where we can uh, once again and again uh, talk about our, our country and about uh, the war in our country, which we, of course, want to, to stop as far as uh, as soon as possible. But this year it's uh, more symbolic, of course, because everyone in Ukraine wants uh, to reach this victory and it's gonna be like you know the first victory before the main victory we are all waiting for <laughs> so in across ukraine in kiev and across the different cities how do people celebrate do they get together in parties will there be watching parties how, how will ukrainians be able to do it officially of course it's impossible officially because uh, in different parts of ukraine uh, different time of uh, command and tower i don't, don't know how it's called in, in english when uh, it's abandoned to go outside uh, for example in kiev uh, it starts at 10 p.m. till 5 a.m. in the morning, so you can't go anywhere. Of course, people are going to meet in their households, in their, in their flats, in their places, but not officially in restaurants or squares as it, as it was before. Mm. Well, and your role on Saturday, what, what would you be doing exactly? Could you paint a picture of how Ukraine is going to cover this? I'm going to com- commence uh, all the events as usual as 17 years, uh, as for 17 years. Of course, you know, inside me, a lot of different emotions uh, and it's hard to concentrate on musical events. Uh, but uh, I realize that Eurovision uh, was created 66 years ago just to unite all the nations after the Second World War. And maybe... It's the most important uh, contest in the history of Eurovision. Just to once again to unite everyone, uh, not only governments of their countries, but uh, mainly people of that countries. Uh, it's it's very important, and uh, I'll try to uh, reflect all the atmosphere, all the vibes from Turin's Palo Olimpico. Russia was obviously banned from this contest a while ago. How did Ukraine react to that? How did you react to that? As I remember, it was uh, banned on 25th of February, just next day after the full-scale invasion. So there were, our emotion, emotions uh, were on the other side of the front, of course. And uh, of course, uh, we understand that, that it's a correct decision because uh, we can't, uh, not only Ukrainians, everyone can't be behind the people who support uh, this uh, bloody regime of uh, Putin. Of course, it's, it is very important. And as I know, they uh, told uh, just after the ban uh, that they're going to uh, quit the uh, European uh, Broadcasting Union. And uh, till 12th of May, European Broadcasting Union have, <laughs> haven't received uh, uh, the official statement about it. They lying, usually lying. So let's talk about this contest. How has the war impacted what, how Ukraine's been preparing and how, how you've been preparing? I mean, I saw there's a video of you, I think it's, it's gone around the internet now, broadcasting the semifinals from a, a bomb shelter. Uh, to talk to us about that, how did that come about? Uh, of course, you can see that right now I'm not in a bomb shelter right now in the hotel. I will go to studio just after our interview. We have to be under the ground because you never know. Uh, you don't have a schedule of air raid alerts uh, when uh, Russia decides to launch their their missiles here or there or there. We don't know where they will fly and so on. So we have to be under the ground just not to interrupt the broadcast just for this. Yeah. No, and, and of course, for security reasons as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the Ukrainian entry? This is the, the Kalush Orchestra and, and their song, Stefania. 
um, I've, I watched it earlier. It's a mix, a wonderful mix of, of rap and, and singing and vocals. Um, what, what's the story of the song and who are the group? What should our listeners know? It's a pretty young group. Uh, they appeared on Ukrainian stage several years ago. They are from uh, the west part of Ukraine. Uh, Kalush is the name of the city in the Carpathian region. Very beautiful places, of course, there. And uh, r- right now on stage, they are wearing traditional Ukrainian wear for Hutsuls. It's a population of that part of Ukraine with the great traditions. And of course, they're trying to mix uh, a lot of authentic uh, Ukrainian instruments and uh, mix it uh, with uh, uh, modern uh, modern style of music. And I think uh, they do it not not bad, very good. And of course, they are very popular right now because uh, during last year, they gathered a lot of stadiums around Ukraine, across uh, all over Ukraine. People love them, really. And, you know, this uh, song Stefania is a dedication to uh, soloist mothers, Oleg Psyuk. It's her name. And it was uh, it was like this just uh, till 24th of February. After 24th of February, it's a dedication to all Ukrainian mothers who are trying to g- get their children to safe places to cover, the, cover them from these uh, terrible events. And even I can say that it's about Ukraine, because Ukraine is a mother for all of us. Earlier on in the week, uh, well, sorry, last week even, um, I interviewed a guy who's doing stand-up comedy, putting on comedy in the, in the bomb shelters in Kiev. And he said something really interesting. He said that the jokes that he was telling and the shows that he was putting on, it felt like it was his weapon, it was his resistance. And I was wondering, that kind of stayed with me, and I was wondering whether you feel the same way about the music and about the Ukrainian music that you're going to be commentating on. Is that, is that fair? Um, something like that, I think, I think, because uh, we're trying to defend our country in different ways, of course. If uh, our armed forces fighting on the front line, of course, all of us trying to do something to help them. And of course, music, uh, um, Ukrainian, especially Ukrainian music, it's a part of this battle as well. You know that uh, before 24th of February, if you open, for example, iTunes chart in Ukraine, there you, you're going to find eight or nine songs from Russia and just one from Ukraine. Now yeah, we have uh, uh, cardinally another situation. Maybe you can find one or two songs from Russia and they will be from that artist who didn't support the uh, Russian regime. You've seen, you've been commentating on um, all the semifinals. You've got another one tonight, the final on Saturday. Can you give us any tips? Who should we be looking out for? Who's who's your favorite act? That's that's not Ukraine. Yeah, of course, except Ukraine, because <laughs> we can't Ukraine. <laughs> vote for our own, own country. Uh, my uh, favorites uh, are the United Kingdom, Italy, uh, Spain. This year we have three or five from Big Five uh, who really pretend to win. Maybe we can add here Portugal, Poland, uh, Lithuania but less, less, uh, of course, than uh, UK, Italy, and Spain. So I think that UK, Italy, and Spain will fight for second place. My next question is related to this. So obviously, there's a big public vote. Who do you think the Ukrainian public are going to back if they can't back Ukraine? Uh, who, who are they going to go for uh, out of the big five, out of everybody else? You, you, you know, now, of course, official, official data that uh, about 6 million Ukrainians uh, flee the war uh, abroad. So a lot of them everywhere, in the United Kingdom, at Thailand, in the EU, everywhere. And of course, all of them dreaming about uh, this victory. 
I think that people, for example, in our Ukrainians in Poland, of course, they're going to vote for Polish artists uh, just to send uh, their love and uh, for support from Poland and so on and so on. If uh, we are talking about Ukrainian votes in Europe, of course, Poland and the United Kingdom will receive, I think, the most from Ukrainian audience. Okay, that's good to know. So that means we might not come last this year. We're Definitely. You're going to be on the second place minimum. <laughs> um, I mean, you've, t- you've touched on this, I think, in, in your first answer, but could you just give us a sense of what winning this... I'm, I'm jinxing it now, but what would, what would winning this contest mean to you and to, to Ukraine? Yeah, it's a, just a very symbolic moment. Uh, it will show again... Uh, Uh, for all of us, uh, the power of support uh, of all uh, European countries. It is very important because, you know, of course, uh, we're trying to fight by ourselves, but we can't do it. Russia is very big. And, of course, we have to to be united with all our neighbors. And, you know, uh, this... uh, Two and a half months showed us that uh, our real brother, <laughs> if we can say, say like this, uh, our real brother is, for example, the United Kingdom and one for Boris Johnson. <laughs> so what would your message be to, I mean, so this podcast has, um, I think the greatest number of people listening is from America who might be listening to this entire conversation thinking, hang on, we don't know what's, what's going on. Um, but the, the next highest, you know, greatest number of people listening is from the UK. Um, what would your message be to them? Just uh, a big, 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 big uh, kiss and hug from all Ukrainians, of course, because uh, 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 it is—it's really very important for us. And uh, we now we see her real friends, her real brothers, uh, and uh, it's not Russians, definitely. It's uh, Polish uh, uh, people, British people, uh, American people, but not Russia and Belarus. Just a couple more questions from me. Um, could you talk a little bit about your your experience in the in the war as a broadcaster? What 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 have you been through? What's the last couple of months? What what's happened in your life? First weeks of the war, I didn't uh, do nothing on TV because I'm a, a, an entertainment uh, host, uh, entertainment presenter, and of course, it it, it wasn't at that time uh, the best time for entertainment programs. I've been a driver, really. I uh, I drove. Uh, thousands of kilometers across Ukraine, delivering some uh, humanitarian aid, uh, then grab some people and uh, drive them to uh, board uh, and so on, so on. After that, uh, uh, we started to do a lot of different charity uh, events uh, across Europe. And first of all, uh, first in this series was in uh, Warsaw in Poland. And then uh, uh, it was the first uh, charity marathon save ukraine it was uh, broadcasted to all over the, uh, all over the world and uh, as i know 80 million people watched it watched that show then i got back to ukraine to kiev and we decided to relaunch our morning show uh, it's not about news of course it's about stories so of course we focused on uh, stories from the war stories of the people uh, but uh, in more light uh, manner and not uh, so so strict as on news uh, and so on and so on so now i can say that i'm doing my regular job uh, uh, in Europe, in Ukraine, everywhere. But uh, all money we spent right now on army and uh, children and people who need uh, this money. We don't need money anymore, really. <laughs> no, of course. Um, just, to, I mean, 
it would be good just to hear a little bit more about your studio setup in the bomb shelter. I mean, could you sort of walk us through it? What, what are the different rooms? How many people are working on it? Is it is it cold? Is it warm? You know, what, what are the what are the what are the issues? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cold. Pretty cold. It's pretty cold there. For example, today uh, outside that was plus twenty seven, like uh, something like that. But I have to uh, catch my my jacket <laughs> or my sweater because it is it's going to be very cold there during a couple of hours uh, under the ground. But uh, about ten people uh, doing this broadcast. Of course, it's a dig- digital team. Uh, it's a TV team uh, who are receiving signal from Turin, who are doing some of their stuff. I don't know what they do exactly and me i have a separate room the most dangerous room <laughs> the most dangerous because uh, uh the, the central ob i think will be some improvising ob one <laughs> yeah it's in the safest place of course and uh, uh because uh, my commentary bunker is just a temporary shelter and temporary place uh, and uh, they are in uh, in the underground uh, of course uh, uh, they have uh, a tv studio for news of course they just create this space for one week and uh, the, the last place in the shelter in the bunker it was mm, not the safest one <laughs> Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to know? I don't know. I just uh, once again want to thank uh, all the uh, UK people uh, for support. Uh, it's very important, of course. And uh, doesn't matter who who going to win on, on Saturday. Really doesn't matter. We saw during the first semi-finals so many Ukrainian flags uh, in the audience, uh, in, the, in the hands of the artists. We've heard... Uh, uh, their words and uh, it's uh, it, this is a real victory for us of course it'll be cool to win eurovision but uh, the main victory that we can see once again uh, that uh, uh, all civilized world all civilized people are on our side ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.